This episode is brought to you by Communications Training for Coffee Teams, a new Mapper Forward workshop tailored to get your team communicating more confidently to improve general mental health as well as business profitability. Click the link in the show notes for further details. Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Forward, friends. I'm your host, Lee Safar, and today we have a very, very special treat. Um, this is probably the podcast that I have from the beginning of the beginning of this podcast. This is the podcast that I have been looking forward to doing the most. It is my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome George Howell to the podcast. George, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me on. It is really my pleasure, sir. You are somebody who has mentored an industry. And I don't say that lightly. You are the, the original pioneer of setting the standards of everything that we we learn from and we take from and we aspire to. And um, before we kick all of this off, I just want to say how grateful I am that you started all of this. And, uh, you know, we'll go through a whole bunch of the stuff that you've done and, and we're not going to do a detailed history. There's plenty of stuff on the internet. We're not going to waste George's time by doing a detailed history, but we are going to do a series that we've never titled a series like this before, but the theme of this series is the industry according to George Howe. Um, and we're going to follow some pretty interesting things through this series, but today, we're going to talk about prioritizing the coffee producer. So, George, um, very, very quickly, tell people yeah. who you are, and then we'll get on to our subject. Well, I've been involved in coffee since 1975, mm. right? So close to 50 years now. And I really uh, started it from a 100 percent aesthetic direction completely wow um i was involved before that studying the history of art i dabbled in art myself um i loved everything from ancient art around the world to to modern art uh, from classical music to avant-garde jazz it was the early 60s it was the days mm -hmm. of coltrane and so on nice and i spent perhaps more time uh, in the weekends at the uh, at listening to jazz and so on than going to my Yale classes at the time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then in 74, I was leaving California and involved in exhibiting uh, this, what I felt was absolutely extraordinary indigenous art from Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, five specific artists. So one of the themes that I, I'm really pushing now with farmers really started there in a way because here I was in 1972 to 75, spending all my time exhibiting this art of these artists from Mexico uh, who were doing these so-called yarn paintings, much like the Australian mm. paint, original paintings, right? But Beautiful with much more work. color mm. and using, uh, um, a wool yarn, oh. bright colored wool yarn purchased, right? Uh, wow. Pressed into beeswax, making these figures, mythological stories wow. completely. Um, but these artists and many craftspeople who were making copies of the original pieces that they were doing mm -hmm. uh, were treated like garbage, right? Mm -hmm. They were 
folk artists, the definition of folk artists, the real definition, which is it's cute. It belongs in my, in my kid's room. It's not right. really for adults. I mean, that's the way. Mm. Right? Uh, and, uh, and, or it's not indigenous enough because it's not two-dimensional enough and on and on and on. Anyway, it's a whole several years of intense. Some reception in California and moved east to really resume my studies. But with the third kid on the way, uh, and exhibiting the art, uh, which I was in love with. And again, wanting to present it as modern art by a modern artist who deserves the credit mm-hmm. that any Western artist would get, right? Uh, and totally original works and in evolution, not fixed and frozen in time, mm-hmm. like so many arts from the past. So uh, I came back east drinking my favorite coffee at the time mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and got to Boston uh, where a friend was and uh, and uh, realized that the coffee there in Boston was here was disastrous. I mean, I hated it and I had already become hooked on really good tasting coffee, making a French press, mm-hmm. grinding and making a French press already. Um, not liking the super dark roasts that I encountered on the West Coast, but there were also light roasts, mm. which, which I found. So already I was hooked into that lighter roast flavor, right? It was much less bitter to me and sweeter and rounder. Uh, and so encountering, especially on the East Coast, a much more traditional fixated sense of art and so on and uh encountering professors at harvard and yale who love the art but not the people who ran institutions Uh interestingly enough uh and uh couldn't really get through had a few exhibits but really was getting nowhere with it uh and at the same time realizing that i couldn't get decent coffee anywhere and Mm. so laurie my wife and i uh kind of figured out this was the moment to do a cafe, right? Mm. So we started that way uh, mm-hmm. and uh, realized, well, we thought that it was a matter of the coffee being incredibly stale. Okay. Because right? uh, that's what it was. It was so stale, you couldn't tell how bad it was, right? It oh, was yeah. that bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, we let our fingers do the walking through the yellow pages at that time and found one single, quote, gourmet roaster in the area for wholesale. He came to our to our apartment at that time with three bags of green coffee. Uh, One was Brazil, one was Central American. The other, I believe, was Colombian. And he said, hey, you want Jamaican Blue Mountain? I'll blend it this way. You want something else? I'll blend it another way. Wow. They're pretty much all the same. Um, and so here you go, right? <laughs> so that's when we realized that we had to roast ourselves. And source? Did you realize at that point that you needed to source your own coffee as yeah. well? Well, yeah, we, need, we knew we needed to find importers. Okay. Right? There was no idea yet of sourcing yourself. There was, who can sell me green coffee? Okay. And guarantee to me that that's the real source, right? 
So we started looking uh, really on the West Coast. We had friends there and so mm -hmm. on. And that's where specialty was starting. Pete's had opened up in the 60s already. Starbucks had opened up in 71. Mm -hmm. Not the Howard Schultz Starbucks. You know, the, uh, uh, the Jerry Baldwin Starbucks, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so, and the coffee house would allow us also to put the art up on the walls. Right. At the same time. That's the, the merging cafe, of the passions. Yeah, and it was right there in Harvard Square. And Harvard University surrounds Harvard Square, mm. right? So we opened up, rent was cheap in those days, et cetera. So we opened up, um, that art would really capture the attention of a lot of students, art students and so on at Harvard. It led to real work being done uh, in Mexico City uh, oh, wow. and in Mexico, uh, both in terms of uh, funding for projects for the Wijadica, as they're called. Mm -hmm. um, deep in the mountains. Um, and, uh, and also it led, uh, it, it, we were a major factor in, in enabling finally the exhibit of, uh, of these five artists in Mexico City in the Museum of Modern Art. Wow. Of modern art, right? Amazing. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so, um, but in the meanwhile, you know, when we opened up this cafe, that became the business too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and so and it sounds like there's a yeah. real correlation between the underappreciation of those artists and your passion yeah. for the underappreciation of producers yes the producers it's really craftsmen who are driven mm. by the craft to do something regardless of what they get paid and in the conversations that you and i have had there's this yeah clear passion that you have for getting the industry and consumers to start prioritizing producers it's something that has been yeah. pushed for forever by our industry and it i don't understand why we can't seem to convert why can't we we, we have this failure to launch every time um i see well it wasn't it wasn't until 2000 i think that the mm -hmm. farmer started to become the focal point Really. But do you think they're Before the focal that, point yet? Sorry? Do you think that we've arrived there? Like, no. My, my no, because big, we're constantly yeah. going into detours, one detour right. after another. I mean, you know, it's always been a major uphill battle. I mean, I don't know about Australia and elsewhere, but at the States, I think you're, you're an optimist if you think 15% of the American consumers uh, drink black coffee. Well, yeah. So if you're adding milk in your coffee, which I can enjoy on my drive through, you know, God knows where, where there's no decent real coffee. And yeah. I can stop at a darker, mildly darker roast, whatever, cappuccino. But I'll be adding milk to it, you know, for the caffeine, for the hit. And mm -hmm. it can make a fairly decent cappuccino. So, but... Black coffee is the only thing that really enables a farmer to stand out for what they do. Where is the line between how much the consumer should care about the producer mm. and how much of the responsibility they place or the onus that they give to the cafe to be the custodian 
of taking care of all of these problems. Yeah. It's to me, consumers have got to love the drink. It, it, it has to come before everything else, political, social, anything. Right. Because if they don't love the drink, they ain't going to do it. Do they <laughs> they will find to- other causes equally valid, equally important, right. deserving of their energy and money. Right. So mm-hmm. it really has to be just like in the wine industry, you know, the great wine survive because people really love to drink it <laughs> and love to talk about it. Yeah. And, get into it right and that's that happens but not anywhere near enough in coffee right do we do we give up the push because you're talking about we need consumers if we want them to adopt yeah this idea of what's going on in the supply chain and there are a multitude of things going on in the supply chain that if the consumer knew about what was going on they most likely would change the way that they look at coffee. Do we have to some. put di- to some? But that's yeah. going to become increasingly more of a sum as we look at things like the energy crisis and we look at things like the shift in climate change. We look at economics and the very real issues that producers are going to be faced with that are going to make them have to I, make I some hard decisions. But take the 1980s and 1990s, right? Okay. Fair trade was the big thing then. Right. Right. I couldn't sell fair trade. Uh, I think I sold fair trade coffees once or twice, and I was happy to do so because it tasted good. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of both organic and fair trade coffees did not compare in quality. No. They just didn't. So the theme wasn't the issue, it was the coffee itself, which I could not get behind. Right. Right. But and then we saw in Peru, uh, you know, back in the, I think it was 90s, more or less, uh, that, you know, uh, farmers there in quantity were all converted to organic. And so, but not, not the quality story. And in right. fact, the quality the may have even dropped. Right. Because it was in pursuit of the money for the organic and so on, which went nowhere. Right. So... The themes are not as powerful as trinket and go wow. Right. Was your was the beginning of Cup of Excellence? Was yeah. that a big effort to try and get the industry to prioritize the producer? Yeah, that was very interesting. That was a very fun moment in my life, really. Really? Yeah, those years. I have to say, um, I had retired. I'd sold my company, Coffee mm-hmm. Connection, to Starbucks. And then uh, I was invited uh, by Marcelo Vieira, uh, mm-hmm. who became head of the Brazilian Specialty Coffee Association mm-hmm. later on, uh, to, uh, to be the quality consultant to the Gourmet Project, which was a, a project really set up by the National Coffee Association, no, 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 the International Coffee Organization. The ICO? Uh, yes in Britain uh, at the time in London and, uh, and, um, uh, and who, um, and yeah, the United Nations, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to Brazil, I was there several times over the next two and a half years, uh, two, three weeks at a time, uh, 
in this vast country, 40% of the world supply is in mm. Brazil. <laughs> and uh, visiting farm after farm after farm, often into the night, um, really cupping Brazils, which I had always looked down on. Okay. As being a commercial coffee, end of story, period. Right. Right. Um, and so I was being sensitized to, mm. to, you know, that there was far more than what I thought it was, right? Right. And, uh, the coffee could be actually quite good, right? Um, especially if you had a coffee, say, that uh, Ernesto Ely from Ely Cafe was buying. Right. And tasting that and then cupping with people and being challenged here and there to, well, here are the five coffees that I'm taste cupping right now. And one of them won the Ely Prize. Tell me which one, right? And uh, I was lucky. I caught him right, but you know, <laughs> and I'm not. Who knows? <laughs> it would have been a sliding doors moment. We don't know which direction yeah, you would have gone uh, after 100%. that. One hundred percent. That's happened more than once. <laughs> that way. I love that. <laughs> Key moments, right? Yeah. Um, you know where your heart's in your throat for a moment. Yeah. Right. Because you're dealing with people who really know what they're talking about mm. and what they're tasting and have been doing it far longer than you have, at least back then. Mm. Right? Um, but also then going to uh, the coffee fairs, because with such a vast production, you had fairs in all these different regions mm. happening at different times where farmers gathered together, did presentations and so on. And I was giving a presentation on why it was necessary for Brazil to improve their quality okay. and what an opportunity it was to sell to the United States, which had this growing specialty coffee movement and so on, and that they could get higher prices. And what did that take, right? So that was my, my lecture. Uh -huh. uh, so I had this, uh, I was doing really into PowerPoint at that point. <laughs> And I had the, um, you know, this person oh, the on the ground <laughs> holding a kite, right? <laughs> and the top of the kite itself was the price of coffee or uh -huh. you know, the coffee itself, right? And um, I had marketing and uh, mainly marketing would be definitely, and, and different political themes are like winds that raise mm -hmm. the kite. But... If the quality, the person down below holding the kite let go, the kite will take off and the price will rise, but then the kite crashes. Right. Straight to the ground, right? Right. So that was the opening theme right there with that. <laughs> um, but in any case, at the end of two and a half years, uh, I developed two programs. Uh, one, which was really exciting, which was uh, and of course, a lot of the farmers really did have a lot of money and they were very large, almost all of them. You know, they started generally a small farm was uh, 10 hectares. Wow. So uh, and they were selling commercial coffee. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But really, those did not have the kind of money. Right. So they were cherries and naturals that were just green and red and everything in between. Yep. Really low quality. Right. But there were others who really had estates. I mean, huge estates, mm -hmm. whatever. And they were often opening up new farms, whatever. And so mm -hmm. we found several who were willing to participate who started at the lowest level 
And then the point was that each year they would introduce a quality improvement. Wow. Right? And so they would have to borrow the money for that through a bank. Uh, and we'd follow the profit and loss. And did that farm become more profitable or less the more it invested in quality machinery, technology, and so on to, to do this, right? That started, but it only went two years because when Cup of Excellence happened and the project ended, that That's maybe cool. went, you know, and just died off, right? But it right. was, it was That would really be a exciting very exciting process. study to do right now. Yeah, step by step. Mm. I've always believed you don't start large if you haven't started small and mm -hmm. created small models and see how they work. Mm -hmm. Right. And very gradually grow it to really make sure that your model works and on several levels as yeah. well. Right. So. Yep. Um, but again, that part got left off. The second piece that I came up with was towards the end. And it was thanks to an awful lot of people, uh, you know, who, who helped me along the way, encouraged mm -hmm. me and so on. One was David Griswold, who ran Sustainable coffee a harvest sustainable harvest yeah yes exactly uh, and uh, you know at a point of real discouragement when the first year at the end i sent three samples of coffees to roasters and you know roasters and importers across the states the biggest names right mm. beginners and so on and really got two responses either i didn't get around to it i'm too busy uh, sorry, or uh, yeah, it's 25, it's better than my Brazil, but it's not 25 cents better. Right. That was, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that, that just still rings in my ears. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I complained to David about that and he invited me to California. Um, and he said he would gather a bunch of roasters together to meet and we would all cup these coffees of mine, these three samples that I had gathered. One of them being the number one prize winner of Ernesto Ely's competition. Okay. Right. I got like 20 kilos of it. Yeah. Right. As a sample. And there I had it. Right. And I said, that's great. And so, but I wanted each of the roasters who were coming to also have their Brazil participate. Okay. Right. So we would cup mine and theirs simultaneously, right? And I made sure the roast, all the roasts were evenly done, light roasted and so on, prepared properly. And we put it out there, right? And we had a number of really key people um, there uh, from, from, the, from the SCA and, uh, and others. And uh, the, the three coffees that I had took first, second and third place. Beautiful. We did this twice. Uh, the other person who did one like that for me with also another 11 roasters was John Gosbeckian, mm -hmm. uh, who's been throughout the industry, who used to work for me back in the early 70s as a kid. <laughs> but I he suspect did you birthed a lot of the same them. Thing. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, and was it born from there? Was the competition born from there? It was born. That was part of it. Uh, okay. And what, what was really amazing was how people at the, it starts when you're starting with the cupping and everything else we're all yep. business people right doing business things, things we're paid to do <laughs> and it's business 
at the end when they're coming and they find the results and they were spending like 40 minutes, 45, even an hour cupping this thing over and over wow. and so on, right? At the end, when the three coffees come up and they're, they're the best, um, it was an enthusiasm that hadn't been there before. And people were more, you know, like college kids or people having fun. <laughs> it's, it's again, it goes back to that creative artistic moment when yeah. business turns into creativity, right? Yeah, it's that whole contagious yeah. thing, right? Uh, I mean, they're the moments in business that you remember as the most beautiful times. It was great. Absolutely great. So, you know, and that was a time where uh, the key person then was Martin Diedrich. Oh, uh, wow. Right. And he was one of the people there and he became a real fan. He came to the first cup of excellence. Wow. He, uh, participated in, in going through the other, the other big influence was earlier than that. And that was when I first went to Kenya mm -hmm. uh, and uh, met Jeremy Block, uh, who, who uh, had purchased Dorman's coffee. Oh, okay. And was really a revolutionary. That company. <laughs> a real revolutionary uh, with coffee. Yeah, wow. No doubt about it. Uh, and uh, that's when I had Coffee Connection. And mm -hmm. uh, he proposed to me that uh, we do a competition. Right? Is that it where it was the born? Coffee Connection competition. Sorry? Wow. Is that where the idea was born? Well, certainly it was in my head. All these things are there. Oh. You know, nothing's created from nothing. No, 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 no. Um, it influences yeah. and other people before you build on what, on what people give you. And many of us don't see those opportunities and those gifts that are given to do something beyond it or build on it. That's right? a beautiful line. You build on what people give you. Yeah. I mean, if more entrepreneurs yeah. and more people in coffee understood that, we'd stop reinventing the wheel. Yeah, right. We, yeah, yes. We really so would stop is, reinventing the wheel. Well, I think that's the most exciting thing. And so, and the, the, the other, so it was the competition that he mm -hmm. did, right? And so we were buying like 12 lots at that time with Coffee Connection. Mm -hmm. I was in love with Kenya Coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had gone from just betting double A's and A's. No, it mm -hmm. was always just Kenya double A's. And I was starting mm -hmm. to ask in the mid eighties, well, isn't there something beyond? What about a farm or something? You know, can I get and Erna Knutson, who was the, the. right? <laughs> uh, she took me to Africa and mm -hmm. and said, work with Jeremy. I'll just take a small break, small cut, and he's mm -hmm. You guys can talk together. Beautiful. I mean, that's a gift. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and so, you know, the the other th the, the the other thing about Kenya that was so special, and I learned that earlier through an earlier visit, was the fact that and that, that those times the law had it that all coffee had to be sold through the auction. Oh. Right. I mean, you could there all for transparency. Lots, it was completely from that point from a buyer's point of view it was completely transparent <clears throat> not wow. so for farmers right right but but the buyers, option was yes. transparency right right so i would get these lots of 40 to 80 bags they were bigger back then 40 to 80 bags uh sampling he would send it to me 
uh, a week before, literally FedEx or however you did it back You'd then. You fax the, the paperwork over. <laughs> the coffee samples. And, and the coffee cup. samples turned up first. So it was in the late 80s that I really learned the cup, right? Right. Not before then. And wow. so was, that was a whole other fun novelty, right? Uh -huh. we really, and I learned that in Costa Rica through La Menita and Bill McAlpin and through Kenya with, um, with Dormans, yeah, right? Wow. The cupping. So we would cup all these different lines. He would send me lots of different samples, the best ones that he had found. And I would cup through it and pick this one and that one. And then at the end, so it'd be typically 12 lots, and then we did a competition of for the for the best ones, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there were prizes given. I was, I'm sorry, yeah. But then back to the auction. The yeah. auction uh, meant that I could compete with any buyer in the world for whatever lot I wanted. I was wow. on an equal footing, which was Where great else for could you. you do that? Yeah. Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> So he would say, okay, you really like this coffee. What do you want to pay for it? And I always said, and because I was the first one, I was very lucky because mm. I didn't get killed with this one. Uh, I said, sky's the limit. Oh, wow. All the cops, sky's the limit. So we literally, for a couple of years, two or three years, right, in the late 90s, no, in the late 80s into the early 90s, we paid the highest prices for the Kenya what, what does that look like in, in those days? I, as I recall, yeah. right, it was somewhere 4 or $5 a pound. Oh, my Lord. Which was very high for those days. Right? Very high for those days, right? Yeah. But it just uh, gives people who are listening an understanding of what very high for those days was then versus the $1,000 a pound that's getting paid today. Yeah, but that's that's. I mean, it's apples and oranges. Right, yeah. but it's still which, with, I, which I call oligarch coffee. Oh, I like that term. And <laughs> and you know what? What a perfect place to end this episode as we go into the next conversation. And folks, in the next episode, you want to tune in for this. <clears throat> Excuse me. George is going to talk about trends in the coffee industry, and you don't want to miss this. So join us for the next episode. Thank you, George. Peace, love, and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in, friends. There are two ways you can support this podcast. Firstly, become a paid member of our YouTube channel. Secondly, you can join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Both have options for exclusive ad-free content and early release content. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. The Daily Coffee Pro is produced by Map It Forward and the music you're listening to is called Run 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 off of my album Laundry After Midnight. To get older episodes of this podcast, as well as more information on Map It Forward, head to mapitforward.coffee. You can find links and more information in the show notes below.